Hi, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Anjali DeSarma, a doctoral student at Annenberg, and I'm also a member of the Center's Steering Committee. Today, we're going to be talking about Eastern State Penitentiary, which is now a museum and tourist attraction, but was once one of the most expensive and famous prisons in the world. The penitentiary at first focused on solitary confinement as a way toward reform or penitence, based in Quaker beliefs of isolation. The first design of the prison, which you'll see when you step inside the castle-like structure, is radial, with cells set out like spider legs from the central rotunda. The penitentiary was opened in 1829 in Philadelphia and was closed and generally abandoned in 1970. After conversations over several decades about what to do with the building, the first tours of the penitentiary began in 1994, and the museum now hosts around 300,000 visitors a year. I sat down with Damon McCool, the Senior Specialist of Research and Public Programming, on October 5th, 2023, to talk about the penal press and its relationship with race, precarity, and labor at risk at Eastern State Penitentiary. Hi, Damon. Hi. <laughs> Can you first tell me your name and a little bit about your background and kind of what drew you to Eastern State and tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Damon McCool. I'm the Senior Specialist of Research and Public Programming here at Eastern State Penitentiary. So I'm the historian. My job is to research the building, the people that lived here and worked here, as well as criminal justice reform today and mass incarceration, and use all that research to help build museum programs and exhibits. Um, I became connected with this issue mainly as a college student, although I do have people in my family who are formerly incarcerated. I suppose I just wasn't thinking critically enough about it until I was um, a student. So I went to college in New York City Mm -hmm. in Harlem, and I was studying history, African history, African-American history. Um, And that's really when I got put on to the crisis of mass incarceration. I was doing some volunteer work with an organization called the Fortune Society. Mm -hmm. And I was asking them, what do I need to read to learn more about this topic? And they said, well, have you heard about this new book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander? And I said, no, I hadn't heard of it. And I read it. And the things that I read in that book were so alarming that it was it was impossible to turn away from it at that time so when I came to Philadelphia after completing a master's degree in history Mm -hmm. finding Eastern State was a huge blessing because it was a convergence of my academic past and and this kind of unshakable crisis of mass incarceration that I just couldn't look away from anymore can you tell me a little bit about journalism at Eastern State specifically um, and and talk a little bit about the two papers that we're going to be talking about today, mm-hmm. uh, Eastern Echo and The Umpire, and, uh, and get us started there, and then we can get into some more of the specifics. Yeah, so the great thing about this topic is that journalism in prisons is not unique to Eastern State. Right. Eastern State is just a part of this much larger movement of what's known as the penal press. So beginning in the early 19th century, but really kind of taking off in the middle of the 20th century, incarcerated people started writing 
and publishing their own magazines and newspapers. Uh, and that was happening here at Eastern State too. So in the early 20th century, 19 teens, uh, Eastern State's first publication came out and it was called The Umpire. And as you can imagine by the name, it was dedicated to baseball um, primarily, uh, but it also had musings and jokes uh, about people at Eastern State and life at Eastern State. So it was a little more casual of a newspaper when it first came out. And then towards the end of the 19-teens, it became more about prison-related issues, Mm -hmm. prison policy, legislation, and the newspaper started to push for things like prisoners leaving Eastern State to go fight in World War I. Mm. So it became much more serious. It became much more Mm mission-driven. And then there was a huge break in prison journalism until the 1950s when the Eastern Echo emerges. And that magazine is really focused on the penology of the day, if I can use that word. So yeah. what experts and people in prison were starting to think about, what are the goals of prison? Right. What are we supposed to be doing here? What kinds of people end up in a place like this? Yeah. Are, we, are we ever going to escape this life of being convicted of crimes and coming back? So really delving deep into those issues. It still included things like sports from the umpire, mm-hmm. um, but it was it was a more political newspaper. And it also did a deeper dive into life at Eastern State. So some of my favorite columns from the Eastern Echo include, you know, themes and variations, which was about music life at Eastern State. Mm. There's a, a profile section in every issue, which is an interview with a prisoner. Right. And it almost never includes their crime, which is great because then yeah. you get to really learn about somebody without learning about their crime. Uh, from a historian's perspective, mm-hmm. so much of what I know about the people that lived at Eastern State is what prison officials tell me. Right. So I know about their conviction, the crime that they did. I know what prison administrators thought about them. Yeah. And that's a very one-sided view of somebody. So the Echo and other prison publications of the time allow us to see incarcerated people as humans and not prisoners. And those are kind of the broad strokes about what the newspapers did. There were other smaller newspapers that operated at Eastern State, but our records of them are very thin. Mm -hmm. Um, We really know a whole lot more about the umpire in the early 19-teens and the Eastern Echo of the 1950s and 60s. And I'm happy to talk more about what's in those papers. Yeah, I'm interested in your talking about this being an opportunity for us to sort of know more about incarcerated people besides, you know, that that official narrative from Mm -hmm. these like obviously problematic officials i'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about the journalists who who wrote the paper some like figures who might stand out um and then a little more broadly about and i guess these newspapers might not have been functioning exactly the same way given that they were functioning over like different time periods Mm -hmm. but um an editorial staff or ethics or standards that we know of um that these newspapers sort of abided by yeah, for sure. So to answer your first question about who's kind of behind the scenes of this paper, yeah. I think we can assume safely that a lot of the people that were working at the paper were trusted mm-hmm. prisoners. They had achieved some sort of degree of um, responsibility uh, or privilege yeah. at Eastern State. In the umpire, most of, although not all, of the authors were white. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that change over time. It becomes uh more diverse when the echo comes into print. 
Um, but a lot of the people that were writing and publishing for the umpire were also doing things behind the scenes, like developing prisoner welfare organizations, mm. doing other advocacy work. So it feels like their work for the newspaper was just one part of a larger project that all of these people were working on to try yeah. and build something bigger for themselves and the people that were in here. Um, in the Eastern Echo, we learn a little bit more about the editorial staff because those profiles uh, tell us who's writing the who's writing these articles, the people that are being featured. They do features about the print shop, so mm -hmm. you're not just learning about the editor of the newspaper or a particular author. You're also learning about the person that's physically printing the paper. Yeah. The echo shows you the equipment that was used. Yeah. So there's also an unspoken element of prison labor. Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit more about that, about like the, the labor practices, the mechanics of these types of um, printing presses. When you came to Penn, you, you brought this clear typewriter. Right. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about those mechanics. Sure. So the print shop where the Eastern echo was published was cranking out materials other than this prisoner-issued magazine mm -hmm. because labor in prison is profitable for the state. And there were all sorts of industries operating inside of Eastern State aside from print, but print was one of the more lucrative ones and one of the more desirable jobs to work if you were incarcerated. Mm. So labor at Eastern State has always been segregated by race, right. uh, except for this. So here we see people who are black and white working in both the print shop and the editorial offices. So journalism broke racial barriers at Eastern State uh, that other elements of the prison were unable to. So for example, the paper had black and white writers mm. when the cell blocks were still segregated by race. So those black and white writers may have been working side by side in an editorial office and then had to go to racially segregated cell blocks after that. Uh, but inside the print shop, there is all kinds of machinery that would have, you know, lino presses and, and you know, things that are way over my machinery that's way over my head. Um, but that's making materials not just for Eastern State, but for schools throughout Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. hospitals, other government agencies. And every document that the Department of Corrections produced came out of the print shop. So these were machines and spaces that were in, designed for industrial use. Yeah. And these magazines like the Echo were just one very small thing that right. was printed out as part of that. I'm curious how many people read these newspapers both internally and outside of the prison. I don't know what the readership was like. Got it. Okay. Um, I think it's safe to say that a large number of incarcerated people were reading them. Mm -hmm. I think it's also safe to say that a lot of staff were reading them too. Uh, right. The Eastern Echo always includes a feature from the warden's desk. Yeah, so I, warden, I read one of those. Yeah, <laughs> so the warden's not only reading this, he's contributing to it. Yeah. And that goes for other prison workers too. There are features on people that work in the hospital or you know, people that work in the barber shop or run yeah. these other kinds of programs who are not incarcerated. Right. So incarcerated people were reading them at Eastern State and in other prisons, which is mm -hmm. something we should talk about. Totally. But also people were reading them on the outside as well. But I don't know what those circulation numbers were like. I yeah. really, really wish I did. Uh, one of the great things about the penal press is that it was an exchange of publications. So incarcerated people at Eastern State were reading prison magazines from all over the United States mm -hmm. and vice versa. 
So if you look carefully at these issues, you'll notice that every now and then in the Eastern Echo, there'll be an article from another prison newspaper from somewhere mm. else that they're just filling in the pages with. Mm. So that shows Kind of that like our wire service sort of. Precisely. Yeah. And that shows how thorough uh, this network was of the penal press. Yeah. Um, what kind of topics were covered most commonly? Um, in the umpire, <laughs> some of the big issues that come through other than baseball, which is the primary right. issue, are issues of temperance and sobriety so this is also the years leading up to prohibition Prohibition, right pennsylvania outlawed the sale of alcohol before national prohibition ah okay uh it was a point of interest for the warden of eastern state Mm -hmm. and so as i've mentioned in other places the warden sometimes uh his name was robert mckinty the Mm -hmm. warden sometimes used the umpire as a way to communicate issues that were really important to him Mm -hmm. so pushing for the prohibition of alcohol is something that comes through in the umpire convincing state and federal officials to allow incarcerated people to leave to go fight in europe during world war Mm -hmm. one is an issue that we see coming up more and more uh then when we get into the eastern echo in the 1950s and 60s, it becomes more about the rising field of psychology and its role in prisons and social work and its mm-hmm. role in prisons. So the echo really focuses more on these new fields that are reimagining what prison is supposed to be like, mm-hmm. really trying to define what rehabilitation means. It's a word that we throw around a lot today, but in the yeah. 1950s, prisoners and prison officials were trying to grapple with what that meant. Does it mean teaching somebody another language? Does it mm-hmm. mean group therapy? Does it mean starting an Alcoholics Anonymous chapter in your prison? Yeah. It's all of those things. So it's really a very serious, I find it to be a more serious uh, publication, but it still has lighthearted things mm-hmm. like um, the upcoming features section, which will tell you what movies are playing at Eastern State. Um, there was a big, um, a big element of performance here at Eastern State. So musical performances, vaudeville, kind of talent shows, radio broadcasts. Mm-hmm. Both newspapers would give you a minute to minute of those performances as well. It wasn't uncommon for outside organizations to come into Eastern State, choirs, bands, orchestras, and whenever something like that happened, it would be thoroughly documented in the paper as well. So we have a really good idea of what daily life looked like thanks to these publications. Yeah. I mean, that's really fascinating. And I guess I read the one of the from the desk of the warden and I was really struck by the fact that that his his words were in this newspaper. Um, I'm curious what you kind of see that representing for the big question for this is like censorship Mm -hmm. and editorial oversight from the obvious power dynamics at play within a a prison. That's a big question that starts from sort of the warden's column, but... Yeah, yeah. let's dig dig into that warden's column. So when the echo comes out, the warden of Eastern State is a man named William Banmiller. He's important because his father, Aloysius Van Miller, was a prisoner at Eastern State. He was incarcerated for a financial crime, so he's a banker. And during his time at Eastern State, Aloysius Van Miller, during his incarceration, developed an accounting system. Hmm. When his sentence was up, Eastern State employed him to be the kind of controller, comptroller, the financial lead of the penitentiary because he was an expert and had developed this 
new accounting system that the prison had been using for years during his incarceration. Yeah. I say that because it helps us better understand William Band Miller in the 1950s and his sanctioning of the Eastern Echo when we understand that his father is formally incarcerated. Right. So William Band Miller may have seen potential and humanity and dignity in these incarcerated people because of his father's lived experience yeah. that allowed the Echo to become what it was. Yeah. There was definitely censorship, and we'll talk about how the Echo ended yeah. in a second, which is... Um, Really scandalous. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that William Band Miller's experience having a formerly incarcerated father at this prison yeah. really helped inform his approach to his job. And I think that the Echo is a very tangible example of that. Yeah. The umpire, or excuse me, the Eastern Echo ends because prisoners want to write an entire issue about sex in the prison. So at this point, Eastern State is only men. So when we're talking about sex in the prison, we're talking about same-sex yeah. relationships in the prison. And that idea was so unacceptable to the administration that they wanted to censor and edit, right. redact right. that issue. And that was so unacceptable to the writers of the, of the uh, Echo that they quit. Right. And as far as we know, it was never published again. That's after Ban Miller's time, so I can't assign that to William Ban Miller. Yeah. Um, but we, we can see that as a pretty clear example of censorship. These people yeah. are trying to talk about sex, this very complicated issue, yeah. um, which is made even more complicated by incarceration. Right. And, you know, they're simply not allowed to. And so we that's don't, how it ends. We don't have that newspaper. Not right? that I know of, but if anybody knows where it is or, you know, any enterprising gumshoes out there want to find it. And so how do we know that that happened? It was written about in Philadelphia newspapers. Got it. So there are a few articles from May of 1967 mm -hmm. that tell us exactly what happened. And it's, the articles are kind of cheeky that, you know, their, their headlines or their opening lines are, you know, does anybody need a, a writing job? If so, report to the Eastern state pen because everybody just quit. Wow. It's not really a job offer. Right, it's just right. letting the reader know that everybody quit at the Echo um, because the topic of the paper was to be about sex in the prison. Have you been able to talk to anyone who was a part of this in any way? Like, were, were, were there people um, alive that maybe had, like, archived oral histories who wrote for these papers? Like, do we have any of that information? Wonderful question. I don't know anybody who is still living who was involved with the paper. At Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site, our oral history project began in the middle of the 1990s. Okay. And since then, unfortunately, but as to be expected, so many people connected to the building have died. Right. So there are so few people left that, um, and I hate to make it sound like that, but there are so few living people who are connected to Eastern State. Yeah. But it is important to mention that there are still people living who used to be incarcerated at Eastern State. Right. There are still people in prison who used to be in prison at Eastern State. So those voices are still out there. Yeah. They're still there. Can you talk about Eastern State Penitentiary as compared to, like, talk a little bit about, like, mass incarceration and contemporary challenges as compared to historic challenges that you know of? Sure. So at Eastern State, black prisoners were always disproportionately represented in the building which yeah. is something that we see all the way up to the present. Yeah. So there's always been a racial disparity 
uh, in prisons, mm-hmm. and we can use Eastern State as an example to support that claim. Yeah. The prison was segregated by race. Yeah. Labor was determined by race. Um, although I haven't performed this research, I would hypothesize that punishment looked different right. for white prisoners and black prisoners. There's a lot written in the 19th century about the sexuality of black men and how mm. it translates into criminality. Mm. None of this is, of course, supported by anything legitimate, right. but it's important to understand that these were the thought processes of the founders of Eastern State. Today, of course, um, the d- likelihood of whether or not somebody goes to prison is determined almost entirely by their race and yeah. their class. People of color in general, black people in particular, are still disproportionately represented in our prison population. So it seems to me like race is an evergreen crisis of prison. Yeah. And did did you see any, have you seen any articles of prisoners during the time of Eastern State Penitentiary discussing racial, you know, I mean, obviously they took it upon themselves to desegregate during that time, which I think is a really significant point um was there were there conversations among those that were like more serious talking Mm. about race there are and i'm thinking about a very specific um author in mind his name is Payne. his his first name escapes me Mm. um but he was often associated by prison administrators as being part of the rise of the nation of islam at eastern state Uh so having a political um, and these are the administration's uh, phrasing, not mine, but a more militant approach uh-huh. to the politics of life at Eastern State. And he wrote about race huh. in the newspaper in ways that I think encapsulate what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that the newspaper really got into um, conversations about race and society in the way that we might have those conversations today. Okay. So... Presumably, those conversations were at least happening in some circles. I get the sense, and I think that you're right, I get the sense that from reading The Echo, when they address a topic like therapy, they're addressing it for everyone. They're not saying making a distinction between if somebody was incarcerated for a white-collar financial crime or something much more serious or whether somebody was black or an immigrant or Mm -hmm. a woman even. I see it more of like, how are these new approaches to people in prison affecting everybody in prison? I don't really see a lot about, well, what does recidivism look like for, for black people or women? Right. It's more, what does recidivism look like for people leaving prison in general? Yeah. They speak more in generalities in my understanding of the text. Okay. Um, can you talk about payment and, and payment for labor and, and how that contributed to precarity or furthered precarity sure so just to be clear i'm not sure if people writing for the echo were paid got it but i know that the people printing it were okay paid. so yeah. working in the print shop um as an industry okay. is something that would have came with a more privileged wage yeah. as opposed to doing maintenance on the building which would have been at the other end of that spectrum so mm-hmm. less desirable uh, didn't pay as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a number of jobs in between. Food work would be mm-hmm. kind of like middle of the road as well. Wages change over time. Right. And there are laws that are passed throughout Pennsylvania's history that determine how prisoners can labor, what they can make, and how much they can make. Mm-hmm. And that changes over time. We do know that... Um, well, let me back up for a second. When people were making crafts, 
they were also selling them to people on the street or people inside of the prison. Right. And incarcerated people kept that money. And we know that people working in these industries like the print shop were paid a wage and that they also were able to keep that money. Mm-hmm. We know that today in Pennsylvania somebody doing similar work, working mm-hmm. in an industry, for example, making eyewear, footwear, dentures, mm-hmm. whatever the institution makes, that person earns less money today than they did a century ago here at Eastern State, even adjusting for inflation. That doesn't mean that prisoners at Eastern State were paid fairly. Yeah. And it certainly doesn't mean that people in prison today are paid fairly. Right. But it shows that wages are not linear, that yeah. views of labor and prison labor shift pretty dramatically over time, and that it doesn't always move in the direction that we would like it to move. I think that we would like to see people in prison um, who work be paid a fair wage at yeah. like baseline, right? Federal minimum um, but that's wage. definitely, but that's not happening. And today. for people who might be listening who don't know about the difference between like a federal minimum wage or a state minimum wage and the minimum wage quote sure. quotes in, in prison. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So in Pennsylvania, we have the federal minimum wage, which is $7 and some change per right. hour, uh, which is historically low and, and low compared to every other, most other states in the U S yeah. uh, especially states that border Pennsylvania. But in prison, somebody can make no money or they can make very little money. Yeah. There are some jobs in some prisons that pay well by these standards. Hmm. So prisons that have media programs, for example, hmm. um, if they're working on like tech-related stuff, coding, um, yeah. even journalism, like San Quentin has a media lab where yeah. they do their podcast ear hustle from and things like that. Those jobs will, will pay a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Prisoners in states like Texas don't make any money for their work. Nothing. No. I'm not saying that nobody in Texas is paid for their labor, but I, my understanding is that most incarcerated people yeah. working in Texas are not paid at the state level. And that's not unique to Texas. There are other states that don't pay prisoners to work. And then there are states like this one that pay you know, very little. And right. it, it, it depends, but it's cents right. per hour. It's cents. I read about um, classes for journalists at uh, the Insight at Clara Barton State Prison. Um, did this sort of thing occur at Eastern State or other kind of formal? I mean, when you actually read the articles, they're incredibly well written and edited and look like very professional, including the formatting. I mean, it's kind of amazing to see um, such a structured paper in such a precarious setting. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any f- formal teaching in any, in, in any way related to this? Yes. Okay. So there were outside workers coming in to work at Eastern State in every field. It wasn't limited to journalism. Okay. So medical professionals, and even in the print shop, experts in printing were coming in every day and you know, being paid to do it mm-hmm. to run the print shop at a supervisor level. And the same applies to editorial. So there would have been outside people coming in, teaching these journalists, this is how many words you need per page. This is how you format this thing um, and this other thing. So mm-hmm. they definitely had... Uh, assistance from the outside and we know that because other Philadelphia journalists tell us they tell us that you know so many authors from the Inquirer went in to meet with writers for the Echo yeah and we can assume that they're having conversations about journalism yeah because I wonder about like journalistic standards and how they presented themselves here 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that those conversations were happening behind the scenes, and yeah. I don't think that they made it to the pages. Yeah. Or at least I haven't seen them. But they are today. So, for example, like the Prison Journalism Project, which is an organization yeah. that exists today to train people inside how to become journalists so that they can write about what's happening in prisons themselves and we don't have to rely on... Um, these kind of major media outlets, a lot of whom yeah. receive their information from the police and right. the state. Uh, we can rely on incarcerated writers to tell us their stories. They are taking an approach that's more transparent. And what I mean yeah. by that is that we can see what the prison journalism project is doing and how they're training people because they want to show us. Right. You know, they take every opportunity to say, this is our writer. This is where they live. This is who they are. And this is how they got curious about journalism. And here's how we linked up with them. I wanted to talk about the exhibit and like the idea of Eastern State maybe having an exhibit about about these newspapers. Sure. Um, so if you can talk about that and also like how Eastern State is sort of uniquely positioned to tell this story within the the history of mass incarceration and Philly and Fairmount. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so to answer your first question about what Eastern State wants to do, what I want to do, yeah, <laughs> um, with journalism here. I think that journalism is perfect for an exhibit at a prison museum because mm. through journalism, you can connect with so many other issues that and topics that your visitors might be interested in. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we can talk about medicine by looking at these newspapers. We can talk about sports, music, mm-hmm. therapy, sobriety. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that we can talk about Um by using the lens of prison journalism. And that's why I think it's great is because at Eastern State, we are always looking for the connective tissue with our visitors. How do we get our visitors to connect with these ideas? Mm -hmm. And we do that through things like food and religion and music, things that everybody can connect to. For me, these two publications at Eastern State are the vehicle to make that connection with our visitors. And so that's why I think that it would be great for us to build something like that. And also prison journalism is having a renaissance. I mean, mm-hmm. it's definitely having a moment right now. And so are prison museums. Eastern mm-hmm. State's not the only prison museum. There mm-hmm. are other really great ones out there. Um, I've had the pleasure of going to some of them. And they all have prison newspapers and magazines too. Yeah. So I want to see a revitalization of this across prison museums and in my site, certainly, and I think that the Prison Journalism Project and other folks like Lawrence Bartley at the Marshall Project, who's mm-hmm. doing great work in the same field, all of this can help bring people into our circle. Mm-hmm. People who don't normally think about people in prison yeah. or prisons, take a look at this newspaper and maybe that'll help you connect with our topics. Yeah. And I guess it's a question of balancing that with sort of a trust in the archive here of that sort of acknowledgement of the of those power dynamics of writing when you're being like surveilled in this really intense way. Yeah. Um, that kind of needs that context of an exhibit <laughs> to really understand. And you're, you're bringing in so many good points about surveillance and scrutiny and censorship. And it's frustrating as a historian because I don't see that tension. Because the documents that I look at are either coming to me from the prison administration Mm. or they're in their final published product of the umpire or the echo. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of secondary sources that can tell me 
how challenging it was to write. And I wish that I knew more people who... Like a diary or something. (laughs) I wish I had those diaries. I wish that I knew more people who were living when these publications were written so that I could talk to them about about these issues and how the paper fell apart and all of these things. But hopefully some voices will emerge. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kind of pivoting, I'm I'm curious um, from a legal perspective, sort of what constitutional rights, like I'm thinking freedom of the press, that incarcerated people had at the time but also again in the contemporary like what like what rights are stripped oh that's a great question um i'm not a constitutional historian yeah. so bear with me <laughs> neither am i <laughs> um my sense is that part of the reason why the penal press was so prolific is because it's secured by the freedom of press yeah um but I don't know that for sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what other forms of expression are sanctioned or not by prisons. So, for example, if somebody in prison writes a book, the book can be published, but I don't think that the author can profit from it. Got it. Uh, so I think that there is freedom of expression, although there's definitely censorship happening behind the door, behind the walls that we can't see. But also whether that person can benefit from their work, I think, is seriously challenged. Yeah. If somebody in prison drops an album or makes a, or writes a book or something yeah. like that, I'm not entirely sure that they are compensated at all for that. And I think there might be legal challenges to seeing any sort of money. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, too, about like the amount of just emotional toll of what it means to do journalism with telling other people's stories that resonate with yourself as an incarcerated journalist. So you bring up a really good question about the ethics. So many times when I read these newspapers, I'm thinking to myself, I can't imagine that all of these people gave their permission to have their names used in this way. Um, Because so much of it is joking. I'm thinking about the umpire in particular. It's got such a a humor bend to it. And I'm wondering, like, do these people, are they okay with being written about in this way? Um, But I think that they are because the publication was well-received. And I think if there was real strong pushback about not saying people's names or nicknames, then they wouldn't have done it. Right. But they did. Mm -hmm. I think that people like having their name in a paper and they like having their picture taken. And maybe that's something that transcends the experience of incarceration. Yeah. It's a really interesting question. I wish that I could be here to see... A journalist ask somebody, yeah. hey, can I write an article about your performance at the talent show the other yeah. night and how that conversation would have went? Again, I just can't. This power dynamic issue, did incarcerated people often air grievances? And, and do you think there was any fear of correctional officers sort of coming down against what they were writing? Uh, I can't say specifically for journalism, but uh-huh. certainly airing a grievance and expecting retaliation is a timeless theme of incarceration. Yeah. It existed here. It exists in prisons today. Yeah. I want to, well, let me, I think it's safe to say that there was a tension and a back and forth between the authors of these publications and the prison administration. Okay. But I can't say for sure whether somebody was punished for right. what they wrote or didn't write or something like that. Yeah. And I'm sure, I hope, I have enough trust in the writers of these publications that if there was something like that happening that they would have told us. Okay. I guess I want to ask if there's anything, if there's a sort of takeaway that you want people to glean from what you do here and what these newspapers represent um, or if there's anything that I didn't ask that you think 
should be fleshed out? You asked all the right questions. <laughs> I think that my main takeaway from looking closely at these publications and being more connected with prison journalism today is that we should be seeking out news about prisons and conditions in prison and people in prison from the people who are in yeah. them. And I'm not saying that we should reject these legacy outlets and their reporting, but mm -hmm. we should really lean into listening to people in prison when yeah. it comes to these topics. And now that we have the Marshall Project, the Prison Journalism Project, mm -hmm. and other prison publications like the Angolite, right. Greater Friends, et cetera, there's no excuse for us not to go directly to incarcerated people for this news first and then see if other outlets support these claims or how yeah. where they line up with the reporting. But yeah. I, I think the lesson here is that we should be getting our news about prisons from people in prison. I was... I'm curious what your media diet looks like. We have a subscription to the Angolite. Cool. Um, here at Eastern State, I also receive PJPX Inside, which is the physical copy of the prison journalism um, projects paper. Uh, and I'm always looking at the Marshall Project and other writers who make their way into legacy media that are incarcerated and yeah. writing for the Times or the New Yorker or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's where I go to receive my news um, when when I'm looking for news about what's happening in prison. I almost forgot to ask about the covers. Oh, the covers are the, the best, almost the best part. The beautiful mid-century modern covers yeah. that are just so striking. I mean, can you, can you tell me about like the visuals? It's perfect mid-century design at its best. It's geometric. Yeah. It's, it's the color, the color palette is really pleasing. Um, there's very few photographs. It's mainly illustrations. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that you should check out anybody who's listening that wants to learn more. JSTOR has a repository of historic prison newspapers, and you can sift through every page of those papers. And you should. Including the covers. And if you want to get a sense of what that artwork looks like, that's a great place to go find it. And though that artwork was done by incarcerated people. Absolutely. I just, I'm so curious. They're just, they're so striking. They're amazing. And I'm curious about medium, but. I think we need we... to bring an artist in here. Yeah, yeah. Get an artist's <laughs> opinion about the covers. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Yeah. You can find more information on these newspapers and Eastern State Penitentiary more generally at easternstate.org slash research. You can also check out our other podcasts at ascmediarisk.org. This has been Anjali DeSarma for the Center for Media at Risk at the University of Pennsylvania, and thank you so much for joining me.